And so I uh, invite you to give your attention to God's Word. Turn with me in your Bibles, or otherwise uh, look at the screens and translate <laughs> Kathy is uh, with her mom in Virginia this weekend. She had something of a high school reunion, and then uh, she's with uh, her mother-in-law. We haven't gotten to see since uh, all our years, so looking forward to seeing her soon. But as we think about life, we think about how so much of it is about reunions. Thinking of how that the Lord has brought all of us through unique experiences. We all have stories. Every story is a different one. As the Lord Jesus encountered individuals throughout the course of his earthly ministry, you know, he dealt with each of them individually and in different ways. No two healings were the same. No two resurrections from the dead were the same. The Lord Jesus dealt with each individual in a unique way. As he has with each of us. Leah stood here for baptism today. She has her story. It is unique to her. Each of us has our own. But yet we have a common faith in one Savior. A Savior who has ransomed us. And so let's think about that as we read together from 1 Peter. Over in, uh, in the New Testament, 1 Peter, chapter 1, actually. Part of your outline there says chapter 3. That's, uh, that's my fault. <laughs> Begin with verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so may the Lord bless this reading, his words, and give him praise for it. Amen. So, what's the motivation? Someone asked me that once as I was explaining to them that salvation is a gift. It isn't something that we earn or deserve. But that it comes to us by way of faith in the Lord Jesus alone. And the lady asked me. She said, so, why bother? I said, why bother with what? She said, why bother with going to church and reading my Bible and doing anything? Why bother? And it raises the question, doesn't it? What is the motivation to live a godly life or to strive to live a godly life? Why should we trouble ourselves if, after all, heaven is just a gift? There's a man in a drunken stupor one time who had abused his family, was telling me with his thick tongue 
Oh, preacher, I went forward to the meeting one time to receive Jesus. Once saved, always saved. And I said to him, Brother, if that's what being saved is, you're not there. He didn't remember a word I said. It was uh, my first lesson in realizing that you can't argue with a drunk. He used to call me in the wee, wee hours of the night and ask me questions. And I would get into discussions with him again. He didn't remember a thing the next day. Finally, he called me up one night and I said, John, call me tomorrow when you're sobered up. He said, well, I won't need to talk to you then. <laughs> Is that all there is to it? You just say that you have a relationship with Jesus and it doesn't matter how you live your life. If that's your question, you really don't understand salvation. Salvation is a gift. We receive it as a gift that is given to us. Free to us because an inestimable price has been paid. So that we find that our motivation for living a godly life or wanting to pursue the things of God lies in our understanding of just what was necessary for salvation to be given to us in the first place. Here in this first chapter of Peter, Peter who writes to those who are his audience, speaking of them as elect exiles who were dispersed over a wide area. He writes to them lovingly. He speaks of the need to prepare for action, to gird up the loins, was the literal rendering of this. A way that conjures up the notion of someone wearing a long flowing robe who needs to get up and get out of there. Like the, the father who ran to the prodigal son who was on his way back to the house. He, he ran to him. You would have to get those long hymns up out of the way, tie them up, gird them up so that you can run. And Peter uses that as an illustration of employing our minds for to be prepared to do something in this Christian life. To be sober-minded. Setting hope fully on the grace that will be brought. Grace that is ours now, but grace that ultimately we will experience in its fullness when Jesus appears. And he speaks to his congregations as obedient children. Those who are concerned about following the Lord Jesus. Yes, if we know Jesus, we'll be concerned about the things that he said. I've said that many times. How can we say that we love Jesus and then just disregard his instructions to us? What kind of relationship would you have with a friend or a spouse if you just simply went around saying, Oh, I love them so much, but you pay no attention whatsoever to what they said to you? Jesus loves us and he gives us instructions. And so we... We're concerned about that, even though we fall short, even though we'll never achieve perfection in this life. Yet, we should live as those who love Jesus and who follow Him. Not being conformed to the passions of former ignorance. But then he gets to the point and says, speaks of holiness. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is a word which carries with it the idea of being set apart. As Rachel read from our Old Testament lesson, set apart by God for his own purpose. But it begs the question in asking, what does it mean for God to be holy? 
After all, God cannot be set apart. He never did anything wrong. He was never a sinner. He can't be wrested from something that is imperfect and set apart unto something else. And as Sinclair Ferguson has expounded upon this as well as anyone that I've read, the idea, the notion is simply this, that, that God is devoted unto himself. And that three-person Godhead that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that loving bond that binds each together so that we have one God in three persons, that devotion unto himself helps us to get at the heart of what this means, too, to be devoted to him. Yes, set apart by him. That's the notion of being holy and being sanctified, but set apart in order that we may be devoted to him. That carries with it the idea that we're looking for. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. After all, it's God who works in us. Not fear that somehow... We're not going to be saved in the end if we're trusting in Jesus. Please know there is assurance of salvation. John says, I write these things so that you may know that you have everlasting life. You don't have to go through life with wishful thinking. You can know for certain. And yet, there should be a reverence about it all. But that gets us to verse 18. And verses 18 through 21 are worded in such beautiful prose that it gives scholars reason to believe that this was a song or at least at least a profession of faith or a creed that would have been recited by early congregations. And so we read these beautiful words knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed. The idea is that in being ransomed is that something was paid in order to free us. Those who experienced ransom in biblical times were slaves. Slaves who were owned by others, but who could have their freedom purchased by them. They could purchase it themselves if they were able to accumulate the funds to do it, or someone else could do it. And so it comes from that context, and the Old Testament carries with it the teachings about this, that slaves could be ransomed. And we find ourselves in that position. Those who have been ransomed or redeemed and it means simply that we are set free through the payment of a price that God paid himself. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We can read about those who have been kidnapped or held hostage, and we know that oftentimes ransom payments are made to procure their freedom. Well, in this instance, we also are held hostage, captive, enslaved to our own sin. But a ransom has been paid. Not with perishable things, not with silver or gold, things which can lose their value and themselves can end up corroding, corrupting, and otherwise diminishing in value. No, with something that is precious, something that is beyond all price. And so, we begin to realize our motivation for godly living lies in our beginning to understand being aware of the ransom price and having gratitude for it. Those are the things that propel us toward holy living. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, 
You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. First Corinthians 6, 19-20. You begin to get a sense of it. We're not our own. It's not my life to live as I want to. I have been purchased. I have been ransomed. I have been set free by Christ himself. And therefore, I have every reason in the world to serve him and worship him and get myself over to him. No one else has done for me what Jesus has done. In Titus 2, 11-14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who were zealous for good works. You see that? Zealous for good works. Not from a people who are trying to attain something. We don't work in order to try to get heaven. We work because we have heaven. Because Jesus has given his life in order that we may have it. We have a gift that is so precious and so valuable, you can't estimate it with anything worth. Forget silver or gold. Or as I've said before, the most valuable substance known to man, antimatter, which costs tens of trillions of dollars if they're able to produce it in the amount last for any length of time. But you can have a cargo ship load of any of those valuable precious elements. And all of them combined could not buy one second of eternity. Only Jesus can do that. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse us of our sins and purchase for us heaven. That's the most valuable substance known to man. I don't care what Google says. And so, we begin to come to an understanding. It is that by the precious blood of Jesus that we can purchase. Like that of a lamb without blemish, blemish or spot. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming to him, for baptism, said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, we read in the Passover. How did the children of Israel, on the night of that last and worst plague, when darkness descended over the face of the earth, Ultimately, when death came to every household, every household where the firstborn would die, except for those homes where there was blood on the doorposts and the overhead piece, the lintel of the doorway. Only there where the lamb had been slain and where the blood marked the entranceway would the angel Passover. And suddenly we realize that that's what Jesus is for us. He is our Passover lamb by his blood. Death passes over us, and we inherit life. Remember, blood in the Bible symbolizes life. That's why it's difficult for us when we deal with passages that talk about the blood, because it's always a symbol of death to us. But blood in the Bible is a symbol of life, and Jesus gives his life for us so that we may have life. So, we begin to gain an understanding here of just why it is that we would want to live that we would want by his grace to follow his instruction and this Jesus oh think of Jesus foreknown before the foundation of the world let me point out something here that is of profound importance 
When you read the word foreknown in the Bible, it does not simply mean that God looked ahead and knew something because it would happen in the future. If that's the case, then this verse of Scripture is the newton of all men. Look at what it means. Jesus was foreknown. It's not that the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past looked ahead to see what Jesus would accomplish and knew that. What it means is that the Father and the Son had an intimacy and a union going back to eternity past. Jesus was foreknown. Just as those who trust in Jesus in this life are foreknown. So that we have heaven as an inheritance. Not because God looked ahead into the future and saw that we were going to do something. He doesn't subsume his sovereignty to our decisions. No, from eternity past, he set his love on us. He knew us just as he knew the Lord Jesus. Now that's enough right there. If you want to go home and have something to ponder for the rest of your life and for all your life, you just think about that. See, I can understand how that the Father would foreknow Christ, how that he would have love and, and union with him. I can't for the life of me understand how that same love would be set on me. That is incomprehensible. Nevertheless, this Lord Jesus, in this loving relationship, before the foundation of the world, there was a determination to redeem lost sinners. There was a determination that Christ would be the ransom for our sins. Christ himself. We were in such a predicament that God had to come himself to perform the rescue. Yes, indeed, as we read in Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, you see, there's that word, not conveying the mere idea of cognitive knowledge. That is not the original meaning. Those whom he foreknew means he knew us. He determined to know us in eternity and also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. He thought that was just in a Presbyterian creed somewhere, didn't it? Where is this predestination coming from? It just reminded us that salvation is God's work from first to last. That's all it says. Don't get tangled up in arguments with people when they say, you're Presbyterian, you believe in predestination, don't you? Like you're all of a sudden the boogie man. You're about to turn into the wolf man when the moon turns around. God's way of conveying to us the idea that salvation is by grace from first to last. He does it. That's why I have security. That's why I have assurance. It doesn't depend on me. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done. So predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, it's so certain that he even speaks of glorification for us in the past tense. It's already done. We just haven't experienced it yet. What a wondering Lord that is. And so as we see this, how that the Lord Jesus has achieved everything for us. How that he has been revealed in the last times. For our sakes, it is through him that we are believers in God. Even the faith we have is a gift. Who through him are believers in God? And yes, here's the resurrection. So, well, preacher, that was last week. That was Easter. Let me tell you something. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a reality for us every day. 
and is every week as we gather on this first day of the week paying testimony to our resurrected Savior. We're the leaders in God through Him, for He is raised from the dead. He has been given glory so that our faith and hope are in God. There's where we find our confidence. There's where we have our hope. It's all fixed in the person of the Lord Jesus. And why do we believe in Him? Because He was raised from the dead. We can name any historical figure that you can think of. And sure, they may have said some profound things, and they might even perform some, some notable acts. But no one has done what Jesus has done. That's what makes him unique. Being uniquely qualified to achieve salvation for us, he lived that perfect life. He died in atoning death. He was raised in a glorious resurrection. He has ascended. He is enthroned. And even now, he intercedes for us. Yes, everything that we are comes back to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And you may wonder, and you may ask the question, well, you know, why do we keep dwelling on these doctrinal things? You know, some people will say, can we have more sermons that are more practical? I mean, I, I, mean, I need to know seven things I can do to live a happy life. I want to know six things I can do to have a successful career. There are plenty of series like that out there. But you know what I believe in all my heart? I believe it's all right here. And I believe that as we yield our lives increasingly to the Lord Jesus, and as we come to a fuller understanding of who He is and what He's done, there's where you'll find life. Now, I can't promise you success in your career, or that you're going to find seven things to be happy about. But I can tell you one thing that should bring you more joy than all the things that this world has to offer. And that is by knowing Christ and walking with Him and experiencing the salvation that we have in full. And as you dwell upon these things in the Word and realize that we have a ransom, we have a Redeemer, we have a solid rock upon which we can stand, His oath, His covenant, His blood poured out for us. We have everything. I don't know where Delta Airlines has its uh, stockholders meetings these days. What I do know is that years ago that airline began with a man, I think, by the name of Woolman, contacted the man by the name of Eatonhorn and said, we've got to figure out a way to broadcast pesticide on cotton because Bowley is eating it up. And they got together and funded a crop dusting plane and Delta Airlines was begun in Monroe, Louisiana. Many decades later, they were having their annual stockholders meeting in the same bank room in Monroe, Louisiana that the airline had been formed in many years before. And of course, Delta Airlines was a lot more than crop dusting by then. And uh, so the story goes, at the close of the meeting, one man stood up and he said, Delta Airlines is a great airline, and I'm not doing this as a commercial. Kind of like cell carriers, they all let you down at some point. Delta Airlines is a great airline. And we need to have this meeting in other locations. We need to have it in New York City one year. We need to have it in Los Angeles one year. We need to have it in Las Vegas one year. We need to move out of here and let the world know who we really are. And I make a motion that we move the meeting out of Monroe, Louisiana next year. Second the motion, somebody said. The 
chairman of the meeting asked if anyone wished to speak to the motion. A gentleman stood up in the back and he announced his name. And he said, I represent 80,000 shares of Delta Airlines stock. And I agree. We need to move this meeting out of the room. And all the buzz was going through the room. At about that time, a white-haired gentleman, well-dressed, stood up in the back of the room. And he said, Mr. Chairman, my name is Bernard W. Eatonhorn. And I represent 580,000 shares of Delta Airlines stock. And I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you all back to Monroe next year.